welcome to the Spiritual Awakenings podcast. I'm David Lorimer, co-editor of a new book, Spiritual Awakenings, Scientists and Academics Describe Their Experiences. It's published by the Academy for the Advancement of Post-Materialist Sciences and is available in paperback and Kindle editions. In this series of weekly podcasts, we'll be sharing the 57 original essays together with introductions and epilogue from my co-editor, Professor Marjorie Willicott. We hope you enjoy them. Part 6. STEs Triggered by Near-Death Experiences Near-Death Experiences, NDEs, have been described in the written history of many cultures for more than 2,000 years. One of the first known NDEs was mentioned in Plato's Republic as that of a warrior named Ur, who was left dead on the battlefield, but revived as he was placed on the funeral pyre. And the first medical report of such an experience was published in 1740 by Pierre-Jean du Monchot, a French military physician. In the past 30 to 40 years, there has been a blossoming of medical research on the nature of NDEs, including work by researchers such as Bruce Grayson, Raymond Moody, Peter Fennick, and Kenneth Ring, which indicates the accuracy of the NDE out-of-body experiences that a number of individuals have had during cardiac arrest with flat-lined EEGs. These studies show that individuals had clear awareness of the resuscitation events in the hospital room and even elsewhere in the hospital, in addition to mystical experiences. There is also an interesting characteristic that NDEs have in common with deep meditation and psilocybin experiences, in that the brain cortex networks, including the default mode network responsible for much neural filtering, are essentially inactive during their experiences. As you read these essays, we invite you to bring your curiosity with you and notice your own responses to these first-person reports. Do they seem credible to you and reinforce your own current understanding of the nature of consciousness, that it is fundamental? Or perhaps you may choose to withhold an opinion on their veracity. Or alternatively, do you possibly roll your eyes at the possibility that these first-person reports are scientifically verifiable? As you watch your inner response, you might ask what it is that convinces you that it is the most suitable considering the data reported. Following the Thread from a Crack on the Head by Joyce Hawks Newsflash A 36-year-old dies a sudden and totally unexpected death. That was me. In 1976, I was employed as a research scientist and head of a cell biology laboratory for National Marine Fisheries Service in Seattle, Washington. With my team, we were very busy examining the effects of parts per billion hydrocarbon pollution on newly hatched salmon. Additional research studies included the effects of nanosecond pulsed laser irradiation on pigment cells in skin of fish. 
all of these studies probe deeply to the cellular level, utilizing the highly technical tools of both transmission and scanning electron microscopy. I received a National Honorary Award and also election to fellow in the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Not only was I extremely busy, I was ecstatic with my job and my life that included summiting mountains such as Mount Hood and Mount Adams and Mount St. Helens before it erupted. Winter weekends included skiing every steep mogul slope at local ski areas. I was living alone and had great friends, both at work and outside of work. I was not active in any church or spiritual community, as I had become an atheist. This was not because of science, but an event that had happened when I was in graduate school at Pennsylvania State University and majoring in biophysics. My beloved mother died suddenly of an embolism in Portland, Oregon. The pastor of the Fundamentalist Church, where I had been quite active before moving across the country to grad school, called me on the phone and told me that God had punished me by taking my mother since I had chosen to study physics. I was in deep grief over her loss, and that message was so cruel that it pushed me into atheism. This happened in the late 1960s, and here I was in 1976 with my Ph.D. in biophysics, successfully doing the scientific research that I loved. One weekend I was at home with a vacuum in hand, actually cleaning house. I was close to completion of the task and in front of a mantle over my fireplace upon which sat a thick glass art piece in an oak frame. I did not bump any part of the fireplace nor mantle, but suddenly that heavy piece fell off and onto my head. I remember the painful impact as my body began to fall. There was no sensation of hitting the floor. I had a feeling of floating, and I could see a long, dark tunnel with a beautiful light at the far end. The light began to draw me toward itself, and I was no longer floating in one place, but flying rapidly. A circular doorway where the light was shining through was closer and closer, and I suddenly stopped just before the entrance. I looked to my left, and the edge of the tunnel faded into the wall. I looked to my right and was startled to see my grandmother Ada and my blessed mother standing there looking steadily at me. I moved toward them and became wrapped in my mother's arms with Grandma embracing both of us. I felt their love reach every part of me. Next, without any preface whatsoever, I was through the entrance into a well-lit and wide-open space. The sky was strikingly blue, and there were rolling hills and a trail. 
and as I walked slowly and looked around, there was green grass, colorful flowers, but no people or buildings. All of the colors were bright and clear as crystals, but in no way harsh. I was neither afraid nor driven by an internal agenda, but simply wandering. In a flash, without flying, floating, or walking, I found myself in the middle of a glowing white staircase with an open door at the top that beckoned me. I walked up the last step through the doorway and into a large room without windows or any obvious lighting. As I perceived the stairs as glowing, they barely compared to the radiance of the room. Every wall, the floor, the ceiling, and a being of light shone brightly. I felt utterly loved by all of it. The blessing of love was beyond anything I had felt in my life. Not that I lacked love in my life. My childhood was safe, delightful. I was amiably loved by my parents. The feeling in the radiant room was of being totally known. There was no judgment. I was at one with source. And the translation of that oneness into human terms was beyond what any words could fully describe. That I was absorbed in pure love is as close as words can get. Love abounded beyond the beyond. I could have stayed there forever, but another instantaneous and unannounced transfer happened, and I was back lying on the floor in my living room. My head hurt at a plus 10 level, and it felt strangely heavy on the right side, just past the middle and an inch or two from the hairline to the scalp. I slowly got up and went to look in a mirror at the painful spot and saw a six-inch lump of clotted blood mixed in a mass of my hair. I must have been out much longer than a few minutes. Was it an hour or two hours? How could I be alive after all that? When I got to a doctor in a CT scan, I had some blood on the brain, but not enough to require surgery. I did have to take six weeks off work and rest. Near the end of the six weeks, I drove to my favorite bookstore. I was headed along a nonfiction aisle when a book popped off the shelf. I grabbed it before it hit the floor, and I was about to put it back when I noticed the title, Life After Life, by Raymond Moody. It was published in 1975, about near-death experiences. I'd never heard of the author, the book, or those NDEs. I opened the cover and read quotes from people who died and came back after journeying down tunnels that led to light. The common elements were overwhelming me. 
Shortly thereafter, I discovered an IONS group meeting in Seattle and met Kim Clark Sharp, who significantly helped me understand and honor my experience. We're still friends today. For seven years, I explored many new dimensions of awareness that the near-death experience had opened. Then one day I met a healer who could bring health to people via energy healing. I was fascinated. I took his classes and ultimately worked beside him. People also responded to my work and astonished me with their health improvements. One week he took four of us students to Mount Shasta, where we climbed to 9,000 feet and spent several nights camped burr in the snow. On the journey back to Seattle, we stopped in Portland, Oregon, and spent a few hours at the Grotto, a Catholic sacred shrine. While there, I knelt before a huge cave which housed many burning candles and a statue of Mother Mary holding Jesus' body. I was at a location alone when I heard a female voice say, You are called to heal. Overwhelming emotions of love arose, and I was touched as deeply as by my near-death experience. Actually, I resigned my position at National Marine Fisheries Service the next business day. This was in 1984, and now I continue to pursue that calling today. Along the way, I studied with indigenous healers in the Philippines, 10 years in Bali, India, in the UK, and the US. I was guided to engage a path of the union of science and spirit, cell-level healing, which has blessed and assisted healing for thousands. I am grateful for every day, every breath, and indeed for the ability to serve. Thanks so much for downloading the Spiritual Awakenings podcast. Do join us for the next episode.